the 11th chapter of the book of Acts will be where we're studying. And we just on Sunday night here, if this is your first trip to uh, Sunday night and First Baptist Durant, we just go verse by verse to the study of God's Word. And I want us to talk tonight or, or consider tonight um, just getting out of God's way and letting him, produce, let him produce change. So I want to talk about um, the relevancy of God and the change He brings. I want to talk to you about how relevant God is. He is not out of date. He's not outdated by the advancement of modern technology. I think sometimes we conceptualize God as being a kind of a um, bearded old man sitting in a rocking chair, kind of um, uh, doty, and he's struggling to get out of the rocking chair and totters off into the other room with his cane. God is not like that. God is always relevant. One theologian said, we think of ourselves as being in a kind of a parenthetical interval between the God who was and the God who is to be. But in the ever-present now, we are lonely with a cosmic loneliness because we think God is absent. That's the truth. In this technological age in this day of advancing and exploding knowledge, we have the idea that God has just been left behind. Someone told about interviewing or uh, que giving a questionnaire to a group of uh, young children in a, in, a, in a school, elementary school, and they asked this question, do you believe that God understands nuclear energy? And 64% of them said no. God is just left behind in our, in our advance in this explosion of knowledge. But I want you to know that God is not trailing along behind the intellect of man. He's not trailing along behind intelligent men. He's way out in front leading the way. And oftentimes we're just kind of uh, uh, standing in the way. If you're following your outline, I want us to consider the, some guiding principles regarding change. I'm going to make this fast, so hang in there, will you? Yeah, I, I see the watch. I see the clock. It's not stopped. You can quit beating it. It's all right. It, we're going to make it. Some guiding principles regarding change. Number one, some change is inevitable. We can't live and stay up with our time without being caught up in change. Take transportation, for example. My mother's 80 years old, and I was just thinking what she has seen in her lifetime. She saw the first automobile that came to the county, and she has watched in her lifetime men uh, rocket off into space until they step down on the moon. Now, that's, an, that's a dynamic thought. I was reading that in 50 years from now, in, in this span, from now for 50 years, that we will perfect transportation so that a person will get in a one-seat automobile, drive out on a superhighway, and there will be these uh, magnetic tapes on that superlane highway. He'll put his tire tracks on those tapes, plug in the computer, and will sit back and read the newspaper while his automobile takes him to where he's going. Take communication, for example. 
You know, we've just come to, to deal with uh, the media of television, and we're struggling with that, what, what our church's uh, relationship to that is. I have a dream, my friend, that one day our church will be broadcasting on television. It's where it's all happening now. And whether you and I like to admit it or not, or face it or not, we'll touch more lives in one month time in the production on the, on the television channel in Durant, Oklahoma. We'll touch more unchurched and lost people in one month's time than we'll touch in a year's time meeting down here on this corner on Sunday morning. It's just the fact of life. And I was reading somewhere recently that in this, dec in this century, they're going to so perfect television that they'll have that you'll be able to wear your television on your wrist like a rich like a wristwatch and that a a pagan in the heart of Africa will be able one day through the use of television and satellite communication he'll be able to watch television on the back of his hand in this century it's inevitable that we're going to experience change and the old ways we've always done it are just not going to cut it in our generation, in our time. It is inevitable change is coming. The second guiding principle about change is this. Any change requires adjustment, flexibility. Can you remember, somebody told me that he remembers when they brought the first flannel graph into the Sunday school classroom to teach Sunday school with it. And it just was an outrage, you know. The, the, uh, the church just abhorred the idea of bringing a flannel graph into the Sunday school room and using that, that modern sinful thing that the business community uses. I heard a preacher tell about one time, he said that he introduced as a young preacher after a pastor had been in this church, this dying church, uh, in, unable to flex and, 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 and adjust to change. He brought in a slide, an overhead projector to, to teach with and preach with. And he said, I put it on the pulpit, the sacred pulpit. And he said, my deacons called me in after the service and wanted to know what right I had to desecrate the holy desk with an with a overhead projector. Uh, some change is going to require... Um, Flexibility and adaptation. Third principle. Any change must be examined in the light of Scripture. Now, folks, if change compromises a state of, Christ, of, of, of Scripture, we need to watch that. But I think it ought to be said tonight, and I might as well say it, that some of us who want to protect the Lord and His church and His ministry, and we want to always defend Him against change, we need to be told that probably God is more adapt to change than we are. I mean, He's the God of change. And there's nothing, there's, it is not possible to experience the new birth if God is not the author of change. He's not opposed to it, He's the author of it. And um, we just need to get out of the way and let him do it. Now, following in your outline, we're going to look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. I want us, I'm just going to touch this and, and breeze right on because everybody's um, uh, ready to go. 
Now the apostle and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him. The Jews took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men, you went to Gentiles, and ate with them. It's amazing how fast news travels, especially if it's controversial. And so they opposed Simon because he ate with a Gentile. He still had ham on his breath. And uh, as a matter of fact, they indicted him. What he did was, was taboo in his time. And they, in essence, said, you wouldn't do something like that, would you? And I've noticed as I read through this that they didn't indict Simon Peter because he took the gospel to the Gentiles. That wasn't their indictment. They indicted him and they opposed him because he broke with the institution and he ate with them. Isn't that amazing? The, the, the controversy they had with Simon Peter was not that he took the gospel to the Gentiles, but that he did something that was taboo to the institution. He ate with the Gentiles, and they opposed him for that. Now look at the account of the transformation, verses 4 through 16. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, let me say it parenthetically, that if you're going to try to effect change, it's good to, it's good to be aware of this. You need to do it in orderly sequence. I mean, you need to have some rational procedure for it. You, 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 you don't effect change by just, you know, effecting change. There's got to be a rational order to that. There's got to be a rational sequence to that. So, so Simon Peter began where they were. Can you just imagine, in your imagination, there are two islands. There's the island on which Simon has now arrived because he is broken with the institution, and there's the island on which the, which the Jews live. They didn't even know there was another island. And so Simon Peter began where they were, and he began to build a bridge in orderly sequence over to where he was, over to where he could see God was beginning to move. And he's going to, in a loving and compassionate way, he's going to lead these Jews over that bridge to his island. And he's going to help them see in an orderly sequence how that God can effect change and how he's not bound by the institution. Now look at verse 5. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, a certain object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. Listen, friend. God always gives His vision to an individual. Have you ever noticed that? God always communicates His dream to a person. He never communicates His dream to the masses. And if you look back in church history and in the change that has taken place in the world, it's always been because God gave a vision and a dream to an individual, to a person, and that person had the conviction and the courage to follow through on that dream and that vision, even though the masses were resistant to it. Now that's pretty difficult to do. It's pretty difficult for a pastor to come from the lonely solitude of his study down the stairs and communicate to a people, God has led me to do this. 
God has given me this dream for this church. God has given me this vision for this church. But God always communicates His dreams to people, to individuals, to a person, never to the masses. And let me just say quickly that, that the, um, um, the impact that Peter Lord is making on the, on the world the Christian world in down there in Titusville, Florida is just along this line for he tells me that he just has a group of men in his church that are just walking with God in prayer and, 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 and living in that relationship with God that God just communicates to them in a special way and these people come back to the church, these individuals, these laymen, and they say to the entire congregation, listen, God has laid on my heart this dream, this vision for our church. He said, sometimes it's the weirdest things I've ever heard. But he said, our people come together sometimes in masses and we pray and find God's will. And sometimes it's because one person, one man, has felt the dream of God upon his heart, the vision that's come from God. And the people are willing to follow a part of accomplishing God's plan for change is a willingness to follow a man's dream if that dream has come from God. Now notice what he says in verse 6. When I fixed my gaze upon it and was observing it, I saw four-footed beast. This story he's told, this event he's telling again. Jump down with me and we'll, we'll hurry down to verse uh, Nine, but a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. Remember when you communicate your dream, it must be a word from God. Look at verse 11. And behold, at that moment three men appeared before the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. And these six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he, and he reported to us how he'd seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he shall speak words to you by which you, sh you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. Now he's arrived back over to where he was. He started to where they were on their island and he's building this bridge and he's leading them back over to where he has been able to, to find and see the dream and the vision of God. This is what he said. I saw God falling upon them just like he did us a long time ago. Um, somebody told about hearing Mike Ditka give his testimony. Mike Ditka is uh, now the head coach of Chicago Bears. He played... Uh, the University of Pittsburgh played for the Bears and the Eagles and the uh, Cowboys, and he's been a long-time assistant coach at, at Dallas. He was a physical, aggressive, violent player and coach. I mean, he had nothing to do with anything religious. Uh, he was just a, uh, a, 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 a violent and, and hostile kind of a guy. Six months ago, he found Christ. Six months ago... He accepted Christ as his personal Savior. This guy heard his testimony. He said, I didn't see an aggressive, physical, uh, dynamic kind of a guy. He said, I saw a man stand there with his head bowed in a very quiet way he communicated how the Holy Spirit had come into his heart to change him. And he said, while I heard him speak, I thought, 
And the Holy Spirit fell on him just as he did upon me. And now he's arrived to say, look, folks, you don't have the corner on what's going on in the world. Uh, you don't have the claim on, on God. I mean, God is active and he's using others as the same, as in the same ways he's acting and using you. Look at the issue, issue of the fixation, verse 17. If God therefore gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever read this statement before? Would you underline that in red ink? Who was I that I could stand in God's way? I mean, if God has given His, His dream, His vision to build a new building, who am I to stand in God's way? I mean, if God has given the dream of a, of a multimedia ministry to this community, who am I to stand in God's way? And if God has communicated that He's going to send young people into the, into the far corner of the, of, the, of the earth, who am I to stand in God's way? Usually the people who stand in God's way are people who have an unhealthy preoccupation or attachment and they, are so, they so embrace that fixation that it becomes their God. Somebody said that 10% of the people are innovators. I mean, they're the people who, who create and effect change. They're people on the go. They're people who want to see things happen. 80% of the people are conservative. They say, well, you've got to prove it to me first. Let's have the money first. And then there are the 10% who are their inhibitors who stand in the way of God. I want us to underline that and go home with it. Who am I to stand God's way? Then look at verse 18. And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. That's the first thesis nailed on the door of the church. I mean, Martin Luther nailed some. That was the first one. God has granted repentance to the Gentiles. I, I think we can bring that and make it relevant to say, listen, whatever God wants, that's what I want. It may bring about the, the most drastic change I've ever seen in my lifetime. If it's what God wants, that's what I want. It may cost me my life saving, but if that's what God wants for our church, that's what I want. That's what they're saying. Now, would you look with me right quick? I want to apply this principle in five minutes, and then we'll go. There are some things that are absolute. The inerrancy of the Scripture, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the substitutionary death of Jesus, salvation by grace, the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead, the glorious imminent personal return of the Lord, the assigning of the lost to, to hell and the saved to heaven, these are absolutes and there is no flexibility in them. 
But the things that are wrapped around these absolutes, these are flexible and must remain so. And I want to give you ten symptoms of institutionalism. I want you to jot these down. If you'll do that, we'll quit. Ten symptoms of institutionalism. Number one, the organization more, becomes more important than the people. The organization becomes more important than the people. You know any churches like that? You know any groups like that? The organization is more important than the people. We're going to preserve the organization, whatever it takes, for whatever it costs. Second, people begin to feel like cogs in the machine rather than that they are a vital part of the body. People begin to feel like cogs in the machine used rather than a vital part of the body. Number three, there is the loss of creativity and individuality the loss of creativity and individuality. Number four, there is a threatening atmosphere so that people can't ask hard questions. They're afraid to ask hard questions. There's a threatening atmosphere. You ask a question, you're against the institution, so I'm against you. Number five, the structure that houses the organization becomes inflexible. The structure becomes inflexible. Oh, number six is an indictment. When the people serve the organization rather than the organization serving the people. Listen up, preachers, if you're here. Number seven. When communication breaks down and there's a repressive atmosphere. Number eight, the rule book gets thicker and thicker. The policy-making manual gets larger and larger. Number nine, the people develop their own special interests. There's no unity. Everybody's pulling against each other. Does that sound familiar? Number 10, there's a loss of initiative and criticism of leadership. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, because you want us to change, we want to change. Lord, help us to grow, to move to shift, to change, to be willing to say, I'll take the back seat. Father, help us to be willing to say, I'll not get in the way of the work of God. I want to assist. I want to serve. I want to lead out. I want to be a part of the ministry and the progress of the, of the work of God. Who am I? get in the way of God. And I pray, Father, that if you need to 
bring about change in any of us tonight, you will have the freedom to do that. In Jesus' name. Now this invitation tonight. First invitation is for you to come and do what these have done today already. Give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. I tell you, make a change in you. I'm here to tell you I'm living proof that God will break a change in you. He'll change you, your life. Would you come and give your heart and life to Jesus? I want you to be saved tonight. We've been praying that you'll come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You can do that just by simply trusting Him. The second invitation is for those of us tonight who have been so narrow and so rigid. God has wanted to do so many things in us as a body and as an individual. We've been resistant to Him, to the change He's wanted to make in us. The invitation is for you to come and say, I just want to present myself to God in a fresh act of commitment and surrender. I want Him to do whatever He wants to do in my life and in the life of my church, my family. We're going to stand and we're going to sing. We'll ask you to come on this invitation.